The book of Hebrews, if you take your Bibles, we're doing a series, as you are our guests or have not been with us recently, we're just journeying through this great book of Hebrews, and we've come to the middle of Hebrews chapter 10. If you'd like to turn there, I think you'll find that in your Bibles provided for you, about page 1008. But if you'd like to turn to Hebrews chapter 10, we'd like to focus our time in the Word and as we prepare for communion, verses 19 through verse 25. Verses 19 through verse 25. And if you can, please, you're able, please stand just for a moment as we read God's Word. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers... Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And may God add his blessing to this reading of his word. You may be seated. I recently read an article about uh, the most successful advertising campaigns over the last several years in the United States. I don't know exactly why I was reading that article, but uh, someplace it came across and sorry piqued my interest, but I was amazed to find out the massive amounts of money that are used for these campaigns, massive amounts of money for people who just can, in a brilliant way, perhaps come up with a little slogan. That's the theme of the whole campaign. And found out that there are few companies that have spent more on advertising campaigns over the last several decades uh, than American Express. Many of you are familiar with that card. Some of you might have that card, I don't know. But American Express has spent hundreds of millions of dollars for the campaigns over the years. And maybe some of you, you may remember some of them. La the last several years, it's been my life, my card. My life, my card. And before that, it was, don't leave what? Don't leave home without it. You see, that's money well spent that you can even say that, all right? Don't leave home without it. And then I remember uh, back in the 80s and 90s, uh, that's the 1980s and 90s, <laughs> that there was a campaign that was targeted for status conscious baby boomers who were emerging at that time. And the theme was, you may remember, membership has its privileges. Membership has its privileges. And there would be these images on the television or 
on uh, the print. And it might be the image of a vacation. It might be the image of uh, fine meals at a nice a restaurant. It might be uh, expensive gifts. And then someone would say, membership have its, has its privileges. Well, that's true. You know, to, to have that card, not easy to get one of those cards, I think. It has privileges. That's true. But something also is true. When you get that card in the mail, there'll be a couple of sheets of fine print you couldn't read with a magnifying glass. And what you find out, you'll find out, yes, membership has privileges, but you'll also find out membership has responsibilities, right? Membership has responsibilities. And in our study of Hebrews, what we've been finding out for the last 10 and a half chapters, if you've been with us since a few months ago, is that in Christ, in the new covenant, membership has its privileges, right? Incredible privileges that are ours. Jesus is better. And all that he's done, he provides for us and membership in his body, that is true faith in Christ, being a member of, a, of the new covenant, has incredible privileges. But now, what we're going to see through the remainder of the book is that membership has its privileges and it has its responsibilities. There's responsibilities in being a member of the new covenant. And so today what I want us to think about for a few moments is new covenant commitments. New covenant commitments. There's a transition. If you look at verse 19, where we started, you see the word therefore. And there are a number of therefores in this letter. But let me tell you, this is the big one. This is the big one. It is the therefore that connects everything that's been said before, 10 chapters and 18 verses. And what's going to be said beginning at verse 19 all the way through the end of this letter, chapter 13, this therefore connects the two. It connects the privileges of being in the new covenant with the responsibilities of being in the new covenant. Membership has its privileges and membership has its responsibilities. Now, let's begin here. I want you to notice the author shares here some privileges of the new covenant. He shares the privileges of new covenant realities. Realities. These are spiritual realities. Now, when the Bible talks about spiritual realities, make sure you understand that does not mean symbolic realities. Just because things are spiritual doesn't make them symbolic. What's the Bible say? The Bible says the visible things are temporary, but the invisible are what? Eternal. So these are spiritual realities that we might not see as far as being able to touch or sense with our visible, tactile 
senses or auditory senses, but these are real realities. Now notice the word sense in verse 19. Therefore connects with everything he said. Sense is the realities that he wants us to understand. And there's two great ones here. Two great realities that every follower of Jesus Christ, you have these realities. And we need to treasure them. What are they? First of all, there's the privilege of heavenly access through Jesus. Every Christian has the privilege of heavenly access through Jesus. Look at verses 19 through 20. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Christ, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. Now, we recognize that in government, access gives you authority. If you have access, you have authority. That's the reason you're here a lot. Who has access to the Oval Office? Because whoever has access has authority. Well, it's the same in the kingdom of God. The people who have access have the authority. But here's the great thing. All of us as Christians have access to the ultimate authority, God himself. Isn't that great? Talk about access. This is access that's a privilege of every believer. If you look at verses 19 and 20, he's using again the image of the temple. See that? Let us, let us enter the holy places. What's that talking about? Enter into the temple itself. Into the holy place. Then into the holy of holies where only the high priest could go. He says, I want you to understand that you have the privilege to enter in with confidence into the very presence of God. Now compare that, if you would, to the high priest in the Old Testament. He could go into the Holy of Holies where God dwelt. He could go in there how often? One time a year on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. But he dared not go in there unless he was carrying in a laver the blood of sacrifice for his sins, first of all. Now, I don't know about you, but I think that that high priest went in there obediently. But can you imagine there had to be some knocking knees, don't you think? You go behind that curtain and God is behind that curtain. Almighty, holy God of heaven and earth is behind that curtain. And the only thing between you and him is this pan, so to speak, containing blood. Imagine that. But now don't notice the kind of access we have. We are not just allowed to go into the presence of God. What? We are invited to come. As a matter of fact, we're challenged to come. Verse 19, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter 
into the holy places by the blood of Jesus. We have confidence to do this. We are invited, we're challenged to come with confidence. Now, why can we come with confidence into the very presence of God? Why can we do that? Because of the blood of Jesus Christ. You see that? We have confidence, verse 19, to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. What's that mean? Jesus and his death on the cross is the death of the Lamb of God, not just a Lamb of God. He is the sacrifice, and his blood is completely sufficient as he suffered in our place. His substitution for us is absolutely perfect so that we can go into the presence of God and we do it through the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, friends, today often we hear that the message of the blood is outmoded or we hear that the message of the blood is being criticized or at least in many places the message of the blood of Christ is being de-emphasized because it's not popular. People don't like to hear about it. That may be true, but I want you to remember something. And I love this quote that I came across this week from Dr. Albert Moeller, who's the president of Southern Seminary in Louisville. Here's what he said, quote, if we lose the language of the blood, we lose the gospel. You hear that? If we lose the language of the blood, we lose the gospel. What is the good news? The good news is salvation. And the good news is salvation through the message of what? The blood of Jesus Christ, God's son, cleanses from what? All sin. Thank God it's still true today, isn't it? It may be an old hymn, but it's completely up to date. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Amen. That is the privilege. Thank God it's a privilege to have access to God through Jesus. Now notice verse 20 it goes on to say this. We enter by a new, it says some other things, amazing things about the reason we can go boldly into the presence of God in worship. We enter by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. Now, here's a couple amazing things that are said. He says that the way that we have access now to God is the new and living way. Now, he uses a word here that shares something. It does not come across in our English language. But the author of the book of Hebrews was an incredibly educated man in the Greek language. And he chose a word that is never used any place else in the New Testament and rarely ever used any place in Greek antiquity. But it was a word. The word new here is a word that's only used this time in the Bible and it literally means, listen, freshly slain. That's the source. It came to mean fresh, but literally... 
It's freshly slain. It's the idea of an animal that's been prepared for the meal. You wanted the freshly slain animal. That's where the origin of this word comes from. Why does the author of Hebrews use it here? He says, you enter into the presence of God by this freshly slain, this new and what's the next word? Living way. What's this telling us? It's telling us that Jesus, listen carefully, is the one who is forever the sacrifice and now he's forever alive. He's forever the sacrifice, forever alive. All your lifetime, whatever the situation, whatever your need is, you can go to God because Jesus is forever the sacrifice and he is forever alive. Isn't that amazing? That's the access that we have. And he opened this up. Notice, he opened this up through the curtain. Here's another unusual statement. He opened this up, verse number 20 says, through the curtain that is through his flesh. Now, how can the writer of Hebrews compare the body of Jesus to a curtain? Well, think about it. When God was in the temple or he was in the tabernacle that preceded the temple, what was around him? A curtain. God was behind the curtain. And when Jesus came, the Bible says in John chapter 1 that God pitched a tent. He dwelt among us. Literally, he pitched a tent among us. So that what you have in Jesus, listen, you have God wrapped in a curtain of human flesh. Isn't that amazing? He was God among us walking around in the curtain of human flesh. And you remember one time on the Mount of, on the Mount of Transfiguration when he allowed that curtain to be pulled back for a moment and his glory shined through. The disciples who knew him best and loved him most, they fell to their faces like dead men. Because yes, he was Jesus of Nazareth, but in his nature, he was holy God. Now, what is the Lord saying here through this passage? Listen carefully. When Jesus died on the cross, the curtain of his flesh was torn in his death. And when the curtain of his flesh was torn in his death for our sins as a sacrifice to God, God was satisfied and the curtain between God and man was torn in two. Isn't this amazing? Our God is just awesome. That's, you talk about access. You come to God, you're coming not on your own authority. You're not begging because you're better than somebody else. You don't have to tell God how good you're going to try to be or how you're going to be better than other people are going to be. You come to him because there is a living sacrifice, Jesus Christ, who is ever alive, whose body tore back the curtain for you and you can come in anytime. Now that's a privilege. The privilege of heavenly access through Jesus. 
And we have the privilege of a heavenly high priest in Jesus. That's the second privilege. Very quickly, verse 21. Here's the second privileges. Membership has privileges. Here's the second privilege. Since we have a great priest over the house of God, what do we have? Notice it's present tense. Since we have, we are having, since we are having and will continue to have a high priest, let's come to God. Now, what is a priest? A priest is a mediator. A priest is a go-between. A mediator takes one party and the other party and brings them together. And that's who Jesus is, the God-man, the sacrifice to God, the substitute for sinners. He takes God by the hand, he takes us by the hand, and he brings us together and restores the relationship. During the Civil War, President Lincoln was constantly bombarded by office seekers. They would be standing outside his office from sunup, as soon as the doors were unlocked, until they made them leave at night. And sometimes, even as he would go out into Washington, D.C. on a carriage ride, people would come up trying to get an office. One time, the president exclaimed, I am not going to open up shop in the streets. One day, the hallways outside of President Lincoln's office, as usual, were crammed with people wanting his help. And there was one man, his face in complete sorrow, propped up against the wall, tears running down his face, his chest heaving. And Abraham Lincoln's little boy, Willie, saw him. And he asked him what was the matter. And the man told him, son, my boy, he's older than you, but he's been wounded in this war. He is a prisoner in a, in a prisoner of war camp. And I need a pass to get to him. And Willie, he's about nine years old, 10. He took that man by the hand he didn't knock on the door. He just opened the door, went right into a meeting of the cabinet with the president there. And he said, Paul, this fellow really needs to see you. <laughs> and the man got the pass he needed. My friends, the son can give you access to the father. <laughs> he can. And we want to be very respectful but it is like the Lord says about us sometimes when we come to him in prayer. It's like the Lord Jesus says to the Heavenly Father, Paul, this fellow really needs you. <laughs> what a privilege. But now, what responsibilities? Membership has privileges, but membership has responsibilities. Now, the Bible says to whom much is given, what? Much will be required. I want you to notice here the new covenant responsibilities. Here's where it shifts. Here's where it goes from privileges to, res to responsibilities. Three significant responsibilities. 
Let's just look at these briefly. Each one begins with the phrase, let us. Do you see that? I hope that comes across in your Bible. It comes across, let us. Three of them. I, I had a professor in seminary who used to say this was a good text for a salad sermon because it's full of good lettuce. That's what he used to say. <laughs> Those PhD seminary professors, they got a weird sense of humor. I'll tell you that. But I've never forgotten it, and that was his point. Here's the here's a salad sermon with good lettuce. Here's three. He says that each of these admonitions, let us, that's an admonition, that's a challenge. Each one of these is built around one of the three great virtues of the Christian faith. What are the three great virtues of the Christian faith? Faith hope, and love. Mark them in your Bible. Do you see them? Verse 22, faith. Verse 23, hope. Verse 24, love. The admonitions that we are to live out are based on the virtues that the Lord has brought into our heart by salvation, faith, hope, and love. This isn't legalism. This is grace. Grace spurs you on, not by legal requirement, but by the gift of God in your heart. You're spurred on by grace to faith, hope, and love. Now notice, what are we to do? Here's our responsibilities. First of all, worship in faith. Worship in faith. Verse 22, let us, Draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Now notice, let us draw near. What is that? That's worship language. Let me tell you something, church. Here's what worship is. It's any time, any place, in any way that you draw near to God. It doesn't matter if it's a sunset or a sunrise, a cloud, a tree, a child's laughter, reading the scriptures, listening to a sermon, singing songs, celebrating a meal with your family. Whenever you sense to draw near to God in that moment, that's worship. That's the reason we can live a life of worship. Friends, recognize when you come to church, and I'll get to that in a moment, you don't come to worship, you bring it with you. You bring it with you. Life is worship. How are we to worship? Notice, how are we to worship? We're to worship with a true, that is a sincere heart in full assurance. See that in verse 22? Worship with a sincere heart and full assurance. God desires that we worship him with assurance. He wants us to have assurance, assurance of our acceptance, assurance that we can come and he will receive us. You know, God wants you to have a no-so salvation. Not a could or might or hope so, but a no-so salvation. The Apostle John said in 1 John 5, verse 13, These things have I written to you who believe on the name of the Son of God that you may what? Know that you have everlasting life. 
The Lord wants us to know that we have everlasting life. So what's the assurance of our salvation? Where do you find your assurance? Do you look in here for your assurance? Trust me, you look in here and you won't find assurance because this is a hole with no bottom. You look up here for assurance? No, no, no. Who can comprehend the ways of God or understand salvation? Do you look to others for your assurance? There are many people who live godly lives, but everyone is going to let you down sometime. Where do you look for assurance? Here's where you look. Look at verse 22. Your hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. What is this? This is covenant language. You're, you're not looking to yourself. You're looking to what? The sacrifice did for you. You were sprinkled with the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. You've been washed in the blood of the Lamb. You're looking to Jesus and His sacrifice for your assurance. And here's another place about assurance. Look at verse 22. Our bodies washed with pure water. See, it's talking about internal cleansing. Your conscience cleared. An external cleansing. This is the image of baptism. Now, baptism is not the source of your salvation. You, we've celebrated these baptisms this morning, right? Praise God. But guess what? These three folks did not get saved this morning because they were baptized. They got baptized because they've been saved. This was the symbol of of the cleansing that had already happened in the heart of Courtney and Brent and Riley. They've already experienced the cleansing through Jesus. Now the baptism is the expression of it. The death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. I'll tell you, over my ministry, I have found there are some people who struggle with the assurance of their salvation. You know why? They struggle with the assurance of the salvation because they continue to refuse to they continually refuse to identify themselves through baptism. They know they believe, they trust in Jesus, but they don't want to be baptized and they struggle with assurance. Why? Because baptism is the sign and the symbol of the work of God in your heart. And the Lord wants you to make public your faith in Jesus by being baptized. And there are some here this morning, my dear friend, thank God for his work of grace in your heart, but baptism is a big deal. And you need to put your jersey on, put your colors on by being baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a great confidence there. He says, worship in faith. Then he says, hold fast in hope. Hold fast in hope. Verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Now, what does the word hope mean? The word hope doesn't mean wish. Doesn't mean, you know, when you wish upon a star. It doesn't mean, well, I'm really hoping that might happen. That's not the New Testament hope. Hope means confidence. Confidence. What's the source of our confidence? 
The source of our confidence is confidence in God. In God. Why? Because God is the God who cannot lie. He is the faithful God. Verse 23, he who promised is faithful. Friends, listen. It is not just that God can do great things for you if you believe in him. Listen carefully. God must do great things for you if you believe in him because he is faithful. He cannot deny himself. What he has promised, he must do. So where do you look for your confidence? Where do you look for that hope and confidence? Not to yourself, not to any religious symbol or activity. You look to the God who promised that if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. That's your hope. It's in the one who has promised, who cannot lie. God speaks, and he always speaks the truth, but notice this, just as we prepare for communion, he always speaks in love. And we are to encourage each other in love. We're to encourage each other in love. Worship in faith, hold fast in hope, encourage in love. Look at verse 24. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Love is always, listen carefully, love is always others-focused. It's never self-focused. Love is always others-focused. And notice how we're to go about it. It doesn't say, when you feel love in your heart, stir up people to good works. When you've had religious revival, stir up people to good works. When you, are, when you are walking on the water and you're living on the mountaintop, stir up the others to good works. That's not what it says. It says, let us consider. You know what that means? That means to sit down and think about it. It means to plan how you're going to love others. Plan how you're going to encourage others. You just don't go through life saying, well, if I can just sprinkle a little stardust anywhere, you know, that's what the world needs now is love, sweet love. You know, we're just going back, you know, to San Francisco in the summer of love, you know, Woodstock. And I heard a good quote about Woodstock. You'd think the whole world went to Woodstock, that concert. Someone said people who really... People who can remember Woodstock weren't there. <laughs> you know what I mean? The people are there have no memory of it whatsoever. I don't know where that came from, okay? But it says, plan to do something. What? Plan to stir up to love and good works. You know what the word stir up means? <coughs> Provoke. Plan how you can provoke people to love and good works. How, how you can cause love and good works to boil up in them. Did you all see the, the, the news article this week? The, the man that got fired at the one restaurant? Because somebody took a picture of him making the sweet tea in a bucket. And he put his arm in to stir it. <laughs> he stirred up the tea with his arm. 
And he got the sweetness going with his arm, and I don't know what else he put in there as well, that nasty arm. He got fired over it. But guess what? He was stirring up some sweetness. And that's what we're to do. We're to think about how can I stir up people to good works? How can I stir up people to love? Great quote by a great poet, Elizabeth Barrett Browning. I love you not only for what you are, but for what I am when I am with you. I love you not only for what you have made of yourself, but for what you are making of me. I love you for the part of me that you bring out. Someone here might say, boy, I wish I had somebody in my life like that. And you know what I'm going to say to you? Be that person. Stop saying, I wish I had somebody in my life that would really love me that way. Decide you're going to love that way. And here's what you'll find out. Love is something you can't give away. It'll come back to you all the time. Determine, I will be that person. Consider how you can, can encourage other people. And how do we do that? <laughs> One of the best ways you can do that is verse 25. It goes together. Stir up others to love and good works by not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Oh, my word, can a pastor just camp here for a while? And I am completely out of time. But... But I'll pause for a moment. <laughs> Notice. How do you encourage others? By meeting with them. You, you see, you can't encourage people at a distance. It's, it's, it's gathering together. That's the word synagogue. Did you know that? Gather together there. That's the word synagogue. It's where you go to worship and the word and prayer and fellowship and song. When you get together for biblical purposes, that's the gathering together. I'm going to close just with these three points and probably be my introduction next week. I want to tell you, how do you go to church? How to go to church? You say, well, I know how to get here. No, 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 no. How do you go to church? How to gather with God's people. It doesn't matter if it's a service of the church. But how do you gather with God's people? Number one, gather with a purpose. Gather with a purpose. Don't gather just what for what you can see, receive, but gather for what you can give. Go to a gathering, go to people and not say, hey, what can I get out of this Bible study? What can I get out of this Sunday school class? What can I get out of this gathering? But what can I give? How can I help somebody here? How can I be aware of someone else? How can I draw that stranger in? Friends, when you go to worship, listen carefully. Don't go to a place. Go to a people. You can be among people and still not be with people. The church isn't a crowd. It's a community. One and others. And there are many people here you need to determine you're going to stop being just a crowd Christian 
and you're going to get in community where you serve the Lord with some others. You get in a Bible study. You find a place to have coffee with some other Christians. You find a way to gather at your work and have a time of prayer together. But you determine you're going to have some community with other believers. And it's primarily not for what you can get, but what you can give. Now that's going to church. Number two, gather as a priority. Not neglecting. Literally, stop neglecting. Stop neglecting the gathering together. Some people say this. You don't have to go to church to worship. You don't have to go to church to worship. The answer is, that's right. Yes, you don't have to go to church to worship. I talked about that earlier, but I will tell you this. You have to be a person who goes to church if you want to worship obediently. Someone who says, I worship God, but they never gather with God's people to do it. That person is not obedient to the Lord, says, I want you to worship me, not just as a Lone Ranger Christian, but with other brothers and sisters. Hey, aren't you glad you came to church this morning? <laughs> Some of you are going, shoosh, man. <laughs> Lastly, gather with persistence. Gather with persistence. It bothers me. As the years go by, it seems to me that people want to gather less and less and less. But the Bible says we ought to be doing it more and more as we see the day. What day? The coming of the Lord and the day, the perilous days before then. We need each other. And I've heard people say, well, you know, I don't want to be legalistic about this. I don't think you ought to be legalistic about going to church. It's strange in almost 40 years of ministry, I've never heard anybody talk about being legalistic about going to work. <laughs> or their kids doing their homework. Or going to school. Or taking their music lessons. Or practicing. Or mowing the yard. It's legalistic when we are committed unless providentially hindered to be with God's people in worship. You say, well, I don't want to turn them off. I don't want to turn my kids off. I don't want to turn my grandkids off. You know, I want to tell you today, I thank God for parents that didn't ask me if I was going to church. I just had to take my little league uniform with me. And I got so bitter about it, decided to become a pastor. Just, just... <laughs> Just completely throttled my life. Didn't want to have anything to do with church the rest of my life because mom and dad made me go to church. Well, I told you, pastor can camp out here. We gather together as a people in the presence of our Lord and we gather for the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper.